Since the beginning of 2023, and a bit before that too, from maybe midway through 2022, to a lesser, less trend-worthy degree, headlines have been awash in news about mass layoffs at mostly tech companies and other companies that lean heavily on tech assets, about startups going under, and about companies, large and small, consolidating. The justifications given by those in charge at these companies have been more or less the same across the board. We are restructuring. We are right-sizing. We got over-ambitious during the pandemic, and now we're having to cull our ranks to make sure we are in a good financial state moving forward. In some cases, these excuses make a fair bit of overt sense. Entities like Zoom, for instance, a video conferencing product that took on increased prominence and had a pretty stellar long-term financial outlook during a period in which much of the world was avoiding physical contact, when we were all doing more online schooling and remote working and connecting with each other via little video screens on our various devices, that company can perhaps be excused for thinking and hoping the good times would just keep on going, whatever the catalyst for those good times. But even larger companies like Amazon fell into that optimistic rhythm and are now taking financial hits as a result of that two-year-ish period during which the whole world was upended and everything changed essentially overnight. The company invested heavily in new warehouses all over the place, intending to further and very rapidly expand their next-day shipping capabilities as the move from in-person shopping to e-commerce buying sped up wildly, beginning in the first few months of COVID onward. Since then, though, Zoom's stock price has tanked, and they've gone through a series of redundancies and scaling-down efforts. Amazon has canceled a lot of its new warehouses alongside other bets like contactless grocery stores and longer-term plays like a massive second headquarters in the Washington, D.C. area, a facility that was the talk of the town for a while, in part because they shopped it around to local governments to see who would give them the biggest subsidies, the biggest payouts for the honor of making their city an Amazon hub with all the associated jobs and other perks that come with being a center of gravity for such a huge and spendy company. But the pullbacks have been even broader than that, as we've seen more speculative efforts like vertical farming companies and some of Alphabet's internal moonshot programs, which have traditionally been very well-funded and pretty well taken care of as they directly impact the company's capacity to build next-step efforts. These types of future-facing investments, which have long been favorites of investors hoping to hop aboard the next big gravy train, have been trimmed down to a sapling of what they were and are on death watch in some cases, or have already had the plug pulled, and are being folded into other programs or just dying off completely. What I'd like to talk about today is one of the key, often underappreciated variables underpinning this sudden and dramatic shift in norms and outlooks. <music> listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The phrase that eventually evolved into millennial lifestyle subsidy 
was previously called Assisted Living for Millennials, and at times the Millennial Lifestyle Sponsorship. But whatever label we might use, this collection of terms refers to a tendency of especially consumer-facing tech companies and tech-oriented service companies between roughly 2012 and 2020 to burn money to achieve scale, generally at the expense of making a profit. What that means in practice is that Uber rides that should have cost $50 would generally come out to something like $20, the balance paid by the company itself. For part of 2015, Uber spent about $1 million a week on rider incentives in San Francisco alone to cover that sort of cost. And we've seen the same at Airbnb, where prices over the past few years have seemed to skyrocket, though in reality, the company has just slowly dropped some of these subsidies. We've also seen this dynamic in the world of electric scooters, where would-be riders could pay a dollar and then 15 cents a minute to ride e-scooters around town, even though that cost model did not come close to paying the true price of making and distributing and charging and upkeeping and replacing these scooters. In 2019, scooter company Bird was losing about $9.66 on every $10 of revenue it earned on scooter rentals because they were covering so much of the cost of operation in order to keep their prices artificially low. And food delivery apps have notoriously spent gobs of money on incentives to get people to use their app instead of the other entities a customer might use, handing out free meals and credit to anyone who would give their apps a shot. They also often covered the fees associated with delivering things, only charging for the food itself and not the cost of moving it from point A to point B, costs that are, at times, substantial all of which made life pretty good, in some ways at least, for folks who used these apps and services, a demographic that was primarily young professionals, which mostly, at the height of this trend, meant millennials. So this tendency of these companies to spend, spend, spend in order to acquire new users became seen as a sort of subsidy for that age demographic. Folks that age in urban enough areas, at least, where many of these services functioned and where these companies were most keen to corner the local, well-populated and on average spendier market, were flush with cheap tech-related service options. This approach to scaling seems bizarre through a traditional economic lens, as burning through cash in this way means you are unlikely to make a profit, which in turn means you are unlikely to be able to sustain your business for any amount of time. But the companies using this approach enjoyed a different model of investment, which enabled this different model of marketing and expenditure. In essence, these companies had investors that provided them with gobs of money, but who, in exchange, wanted the companies to go 10x or more to basically earn those investors back their money many-fold and to do so relatively quickly. This model makes sense from these investors' perspective because their plan, their strategy, involved making a bunch of bets and then having one of those bets pay off the losses from 10 or 20 or 100 others that fail to do so. That one big win is so massive, though, that they can afford to keep spending in this way. The profits are just that monumental. This strategy tended to require the companies they invest in to engage in what's often called blitz scaling, 
which basically means getting as big as possible as rapidly as possible. And in practice, that tends to mean spending a silly amount of money on scaling up efforts in desirable markets, and then keeping prices as low as possible so as to kill off all the other businesses doing the same thing that don't have that investment capital to rely on and burn through. They have to earn profit to survive and will thus go out of business before the blitz scaling company works their way through their entire investment stockpile. And this model allows them to compete with other blitz scaling entities as well as long as they spend that money building their infrastructure, creating habits in their users, and making their brand ubiquitous. The outcome of this model is that Uber goes from zero to everywhere in just a few years. Scooter companies throw bags of cash at local governments and would-be users to build habits around using their scooter rental services. And food delivery companies pay most of the costs associated with their own services because if they can become the default most used delivery app in a given city, they can then eventually increase the price, remove the subsidies, and in theory at least, they then have a captive market paying a reasonable fee, a near monopoly on providing that service in that area because they've taken the time and spent the money to kill off all possible competition and to build up the habit of using their app in the users in that region. Other companies have shown that this model can work. Amazon has done this to some degree, as of other companies that survived the dot-com bubble and the early 2000s, and that's part of what made this approach so appealing to so many investors and startup founders. But it's also the consequence of an economic state of affairs called zero interest rate policy, which tends to get a lot less attention than the other variables shaping this strategy in most circles. Zero interest rate policy, often acronymed as ZERP, refers to economic climates in which nominal interest rates within a given region have been set at or near zero. What that means is borrowing money will typically cost almost nothing, usually because the central bank in the region in question has pulled the right levers and pushed the right buttons in order to stoke economic activity. When interest rates are low and thus debt is cheap because you pay little or no interest on the money you borrow, that encourages all sorts of people and businesses to borrow money in order to build companies, to invest in assets, to hire more people, and to do other such economic things. The millennial lifestyle subsidy, then, is a consequence of an economic environment in which central banking agencies are keen to see more economic growth. And debt is thus incredibly cheap to access, which allows investors and established businesses to get big bags of money whenever they want for essentially zero cost. And that allows them to burn through that money with the aim of conquering a given market and killing off their competition, and then hopefully someday making gobs of profits in some distant future at which point they can pay back that debt which hasn't accrued much or any interest in the interim. During the past decade or so, during that aforementioned 2012 to 2020 period in particular, we've kind of come to take these ZERP conditions for granted. Many people, including founders and investors, don't remember or barely remember the last time their savings account paid them much of anything in terms of interest. And that's because that savings account interest rate is connected to the same deeper level interest rate 
as other sorts of debt payments. The central bank does not want you to save. It wants you to spend and invest. So it adjusts incentives in such a way that you are pushed to spend and invest rather than tucking your money away in that savings account. Likewise, it's difficult to remember, for someone my age at least, and I'm in my mid-30s, a time in which the term tech company didn't mean a company that began as a scrappy startup, received a boatload of money, and then frantically spent that money to scale up as quickly as possible. This dynamic is part of why tech companies have tended to attract outsized valuations based on their current accounting data compared to other companies, by the way, because it became a truism that a tech company's best days would always be ahead of them, possibly a good deal ahead of them. You might invest in a big box store like Walmart based on their current financial situation and a multiple of what they currently seem to be worth, maybe three or four or even five times what their current books suggest. But you invest in a tech company like Facebook back before it became meta based on projected income once it reaches the scale they could someday reach. And at some point in the future, after they have killed off a suitable percentage of the competition and gotten just globally huge, this is also why many companies during this period have pivoted their branding to make it seem like they are tech companies, not traditional car companies or big box stores or whatever else. They wanted to be invested in based on those massively inflated projected numbers rather than their current revenue, expenses, and resultant profits. So instead of being invested in, based on three or four times their current seeming economic value, they might get something like a tech company gets, 10 or 20 or 30 times what their accounting books show today. This is an interesting topic, in part because we're entering a new phase of post-ZERP economics, because the Fed in the United States and central banking entities around the globe have been busily jacking up their key interest rates in order to slow economic activity. That slowing meant to tamp down on inflation rates, which have been modern historically high for a lot of reasons, some tied to the pandemic, some to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and some tied to various sorts of government spending and the general global economic weather. For context, recent federal funds rates, which is the U.S. Fed's key interest rate that they use to control these sorts of things, have seen a drop to effectively zero during the 2008 financial crisis. That drop meant to keep the economy going to stimulate economic activity, despite everything being basically on fire all at once back then. And that was the drop that eventually led to that aforementioned period between 2012 and 2020 of near zero or zero interest rates. And they did the same in the early pandemic in March of 2020 for the same reason, to keep the economy ticking along despite everything. The opposite was true in 1980, though, when the Fed pulled this interest rate all the way up to 20%, the highest in its history, in response to double-digit inflation rates. The idea, then as now, to stop and reduce that inflation rate as rapidly as possible. So that makes taking out debt, borrowing money incredibly expensive, and it incentivizes people to do things like put their money in their savings account, because they can earn a whole lot risk-free by doing that. In that 1980s context, the current interest rate of 4.5% to 4.75%, that is the goal range that the Fed set with their current lever-pulling activities as of March 2023, is not a huge deal. But looking at it in the context of the past decade, it is a substantial increase over the not-quite-zero rate that we have had for a significant portion of the late 20th and early 21st centuries thus far. 
one of the most immediate effects many of us will experience as a result of this arguably moderate but comparably quite dramatic interest rate increase is that the remnants of that lifestyle subsidy, all those freebies and bonuses and incentives are beginning to go away, and all the companies that were enthusiastically burning through investment money in order to artificially reduce their prices are now holding mass layoffs cutting back on benefits and offices, and canceling the construction of new forward-thinking infrastructure. They're also raising prices and reducing offerings, cutting back on their freemium options, and doing whatever else they can think to do in order to quickly become financially stable. After a long period of, who cares, we can just borrow more money if we need to, style thinking. Some of this is no doubt performative, as many of these companies just don't want to be seen as too spendy during a period of relative austerity, when all of your competition is cutting back to save money and reduce expenses, you can get away with doing some of the same without suffering any bad press, and doing so denies your competition the ability to look more financially responsible than you, and thus boost their own good PR at your expense. But many of these cuts are related to that previously ignored bottom line. They cannot keep spending on stuff that does not pay out anytime soon. So we are seeing fewer moonshot-like efforts and more announcements about immediate products and payoffs, including news about how they're saving money, trimming the fat, and becoming leaner, meaner versions of what they were mere months ago. There is a chance the Fed and other central banks globally will slow or stop their interest rate hiking sooner rather than later, and that things will then pick back up shortly thereafter. But current estimates suggest it could be another year or two, minimum, before these rates start to seriously drop, even if they plateau before then which means we are likely to have at least a handful of years in which the previous prevailing economic dynamics have flipped, and during which we will all have to figure out what that means, including those of us who have never really known such a world in a practical sense previously. We will also likely see a bunch of new startups pop up, though probably of the bootstrapped variety, rather than the swimming in investor money variety, as the folks who are laid off at these big tech companies start up their own things. And we'll probably see more reversions to earlier pre-ZERP norms and business models as well, including taxi cabs and hotels becoming better options than Uber and Airbnb again, because the non-app versions of these services will in many cases be cheaper, and in some cases just better, now that the app-enabled sharing economy versions of the same have to make a profit and can no longer artificially adjust their industry's pricing the way that they have for the past decade. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. This is a novel. It is a very lovely read. It's the sort of novel that isn't short exactly, but it's easy to sit down with it and get lost in it and read for a very long duration. So you could conceivably read it over a very short period of time. And it's about the video game world, but also about a sort of non-standard relationship or collection of relationships between the primary characters. 
who are involved in the video game world. And so those relationships are interesting, their dynamics are interesting, and the exploration of some facets of that industry are also fascinating. And overall, it's just a really lovely read. If you're looking for something that has some depth to it, but that also goes down smooth without being overly cognitively demanding for what it is. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. That's Colin with one L. You can find the show notes and transcript of this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your podcasts or at onesentencenews.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter, and just Colin Wright on most of the other ones, Facebook and YouTube and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.